house arrest in Rome. And don't we all wish that Dr. Luke, having written Luke and Acts, had gone on to write volume three so that we knew, knew what happened next? But we can be fairly certain, we are told, that Paul was released from that imprisonment and after further missionary work was then subsequently rearrested and imprisoned again in Rome. And it seems from this letter that his circumstances were now much worse. He talks about being in chains rather than being under house arrest. And the letter that we've just read is Paul's last known written communication. It's written to his young friend and protege, Timothy, someone whom Paul had mentored from a young age and had labored alongside Paul in the gospel. And there's a sense here of Paul facing execution, and we know that's what happened to him, passing on the baton to Timothy. I wonder what Timothy felt as he read that letter. Given how long it must have taken for the letter to travel from Rome to Ephesus, where Timothy probably was at this time, I wonder if he ever made that journey from Ephesus to, to meet Paul in prison. Was Paul still alive when he got there? We don't know. But I'm sure when Timothy read this letter, he read it with tears in his eyes. For Paul was loved by those who worked with him. We sometimes think of Paul, we read his letters and we read of him telling off churches for various things, false teachings and so on, and correcting them. But Paul was loved. If you read in Acts 20 about the, the Ephesian elders, the last time he met with them, they're in tears. And the main reason they're in tears is because they think they will never see Paul again. So Paul was loved. So you can imagine Timothy, Paul's son in the faith, reading this letter and, and weeping, especially when Paul goes into the personal details. Um, Come and visit me. Bring my warm coat. Bring my books and especially my parchments, because I'm pretty much on my own, and I really miss you, Timothy. Paul in 1 Timothy refers to Timothy as my true child in the faith, and in this letter, as my beloved child. It's probable that Paul had no children, and Timothy may well have had no father since childhood. Paul talks about his mother and his grandmother, and certainly it seems if his father was alive, he wasn't a believer. So the relationship was very close. It was that of father and son almost. And he refers in chapter 1, verse 3 of, of 2 Timothy to Timothy's tears when they parted. So they, they were very close. And as you read through the letter, it seems that Paul had three, at least three main concerns, three broad instructions, three exhortations for Timothy. Firstly, Timothy was to fan into flame the gift of God that he had. He wasn't to neglect the gift that he had, but he was to use it in the service of the church. Now, that's been the subject of many an ordination or induction service, but I don't want to major in that this morning. Second thing was that Timothy was to be aware of false teaching. It was always a danger in the church. It was already there. It was going to get worse. And Timothy was to proclaim the apostolic truth and pass it on to faithful men who would in turn pass it on to others so that long after Paul was gone, long after Timothy was gone, that kernel of truth in the gospel was still to be trusted and believed in the churches. And thirdly, Timothy was to be aware that this task was not going to be easy. There already was, and there would continue to be opposition, and much worse. And it's this third concern that we want to look at this morning. See, when Jeff asked me to speak in this subject today, my first thought was that I'd really rather not. 
what do I know about persecution? What have you experienced of persecution in your life as a Christian? When has adhering to your Christian profession resulted in difficulty? Well, according to Open Doors, there are 360 million professing Christians worldwide who experience persecution to a significant extent. 360 million professing Christians have their lives constrained because they profess to be Christians. And this goes much beyond being mocked at school or excluded from particular groups because you profess a Christian faith. That's, most of us have probably experienced that to some degree at some time in our lives. But for these people, this extends to physical harm, to economic harm, even to imprisonment and death, as we saw this morning on the screen. And anyone who lives in the formerly Christian West, and I say formerly, can see the direction in which our society is moving to. And if you doubt me, spend a few minutes on the Christian Institute's website when you go home, and you will read lots of stories about Christians being persecuted simply for being Christians. So as I said at the time when Jeff messaged me, I was reading through Second Timothy, and I couldn't help but noticing that the theme of persecution and suffering for the gospel is all over Second Timothy. In fact, it's all over the New Testament, isn't it? You just need to read about Paul's life and read his letters, and there it is. So here's Paul in prison, chained, awaiting execution. And we have to ask, why is he in prison? What has he actually done that means that he's going to be in prison? How did it end like this? Well, in chapter 1, he explains why. He said, it is for no other reason than he serves the Lord. Now, hold on a minute. The gospel, by definition, is the good news about Christ's death and resurrection and about the significance of such for those who embrace the good news. I think we'd all agree with that this morning. Gospel's good news about Christ and his resurrection and good news to those who embrace that message. So why is it that the good news of the gospel is so offensive that Paul finishes up in prison? And it wasn't the first time as we saw. I mean, Paul had suffered for the gospel to an incredible extent. He writes to the Corinthians, um, who were faced with some false apostles who were boasting about their own achievements. He said, what anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. 
but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. What a catalogue of suffering for the gospel. What a humiliation for Apostle Paul, one of the most talented scholars of his time, being lowered over the wall in a basket to escape simply because he preached the gospel. So why is this message so offensive? If it's good news, what had Paul done to finish up in chains and facing execution in Rome? Let me suggest two reasons why the gospel is offensive. Firstly, it's offensive because it tells people that they're sinners in need of salvation and unable to save themselves. That was Paul's message. We've heard it read and prayed this morning, haven't we? This was, and still isn't, a popular message. I mean, at the center of Paul's preaching was the cross, as he says in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified. And he goes on to say that this seems to be a foolish message to many. In fact, in Acts 17, he is mocked when he explains the resurrection to the folk in Athens who are here to find out about his message. In one of his trials in Acts 26, he's told that he's insane. Much learning has made you mad. Now, we can understand that, can't we? Because if you start to analyze it through worldly eyes, the message of the gospel does seem to be foolish. How can one man atone for the sins of millions of people? You can understand how without enlightenment by the Holy Spirit, that seems to be a foolish message. So we can understand why some people might think it's silly. That is enough to get you locked up. Unless the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of unconverted people, they may well think that the gospel message is implausible or even insane. But that shouldn't lead to persecution of people who proclaim it, should it? So the answer, I think, must be in the second reason. And the second reason why the gospel is offensive is because it denies that earthly powers are the highest authority. Who do you owe your allegiance to, Paul? I owe my allegiance to Jesus. Really? See, in Daniel's day, they were asked to give their allegiance to King Nebuchadnezzar, and they refused to do it. Nebuchadnezzar fancied himself as a god. And Daniel and his friends would not bow down to him because their allegiance was to the God of Israel. For Peter and John, in Acts chapter 4, it was the leaders of the Jewish council, and we had that this morning as well, who told them to stop preaching this message, and they said, we have to obey God rather than men. They recognized a higher authority. For Christians in the Roman Empire, the emperor was the supreme authority. In fact, most of the emperors actually wanted to be worshipped as gods. So you can imagine if you want to get on in life and you refuse to worship the emperor, what the likely outcome of that is. And Christians refused to bow the knee to the emperor because they recognized a higher authority. They recognized that Jesus Christ is the king of the universe. And it's the same today in North Korea. It's the same in China. It's the same in many of the countries on Open Doors World Watch List. That you have to be, give your absolute allegiance to the dictator Putin, whoever he is, and to the state authorities. Now the same might be true in the UK for us to a lesser extent, though I think it's getting worse. When the laws demand that we cannot do what we want to do, or make us do things that we say we simply can't do, those days may come. So Paul's in prison because the message that he has is, is offensive, yes, 
but it's offensive because he refuses to recognize the authority of the state. And the only way the state ever deals with that sort of thing is to arrest the leaders, is to lock them up in prison, is to execute them. So it seems that the principle that the early Christians had was that Christians, and especially their leaders, were likely to suffer for the gospel. To become a Christian in the first century was costly. If you became a Christian from a Jewish background, you were excommunicated from the synagogue. If you became a Christian and you were a Roman citizen and refused to worship the empire, the consequences were grave. Leaders such as James, and we read about in Acts, Peter and John and Paul were obvious targets. Because if you cut off the head, the body is likely to die. And isn't that what's happened in these countries we saw about earlier? That Look at the pastors who are in jail. If you can take out the pastor of a church, the president of a seminary, the guy who leads up and is the front for the church, the church will wither and disappear. At least that's what they think. In John chapter 15, Jesus said to his disciples that they really shouldn't be surprised if these sorts of things happened. John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus' disciples, Jesus' followers were to expect persecution. Paul sums it up in 2 Timothy 3.12 when he says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So does that mean if you're not being persecuted for your faith that you're not trying to live a godly life? I don't think so. We're called to live a godly life even if the consequences mean that we'll be persecuted for that. So his warning to Timothy is very real. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So I'm sure Timothy was familiar with that catalogue of suffering in 2 Corinthians, all the terrible things that had happened to his friend Paul. And some of them had probably happened to him as well and might do in the future. So how was Timothy and how were the church leaders to prepare for the persecution that was coming? By persecution, by the way, I mean suffering for one's faith. We all live in a world where suffering is part of the human lot. But I'm talking specifically about persecution because one is a Christian. Suffering comes in many forms and persecution is only one of those forms, of course. And we can read about it rather than experience it. So I, I haven't suffered persecution from my faith to any great extent, and you may not have, or maybe you have. But let's see what the Word of God says about it. Let, let's learn from the Word of God. So, one or two things that might have helped Timothy might help us as well. Firstly, I'm not going to major on this. We've covered it already. Expect persecution. Persecution was to be expected if you follow Jesus Christ. And the second thing then that was to help Timothy was just an instruction from Paul, an exhortation. Timothy, he says, do not be ashamed. 
Now, it'd be quite easy to be ashamed of the message or of Paul and what he had become as a result of preaching that message. Look at chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. I've got, yes, he talks about those who, uh, and sorry for further down, who have changed the message, who preach falsely. Sorry, it's chapter 1, verse 15. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Anesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So I think the implication there is that Phygelus and Hermogenes were ashamed of Paul's chains. They didn't want to be associated with a man who was in prison. There's that verse in Hebrews 13, and again was on the screen this morning, about those who are in prison and joining in fellowship with them as though you were in prison too. That was too much for these guys. But Onesiphorus was different. He wasn't ashamed of Paul. He came and visited Paul. He was good to him. Isn't it interesting that these three people are footnotes in the scriptures? But note how they're remembered. How would you like to be remembered? One of those who deserted Paul, the only thing the Bible says about you. Or one of those who was not ashamed of Paul and came and comforted him and ministered to him. He actually visited Rome and he searched really hard until he found the prison where Paul was. And Paul says, may the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. So Timothy wasn't to be ashamed of either the message or of Paul who was in chains because he preached the message. I wonder what Phagellus and Hermogenes were thinking. Perhaps they thought that Paul was just a little bit too fanatical about the message. Perhaps if he just watered it down a little bit, if he had just maybe gone along with this emperor worship business a little bit, not hugely, but just a little bit. Perhaps if he just made the message a wee bit easier, a wee bit more attuned to the culture, and hadn't been quite so fanatical about some of the things he preached, perhaps he wouldn't have finished up in prison. And that's undoubtedly right. He almost certainly wouldn't have finished up in prison. But what sort of a watered-down message would it have been? Isn't that a temptation for Christians today? To water down the message, to accommodate the culture? To change our message so that it's much more appealing to people who don't believe and understand the gospel? See, in the recent census, which you've probably all read about, it's been much commented on that less than 50% of the population in England might call themselves Christian. Um, I think it's 3.8% call themselves evangelical Christians, by the way. But less than 50% of the population in England. So is the answer to change the message so that people in England start to come back to church? Is the answer to water them? And churches have tried that. Let's accept all sorts of what the Bible condemns as sexual immorality and allow that into our churches. Let's change the, te- the teaching of the gospel on, on various important things in the hope that we'll attract more people in. Um, there's a letter to the Times on Saturday which somebody shared with me um, from the Reverend Canon J. John, whom some of you will know as a well-known evangelist. And this is what he wrote. Sir, the census figures and religious belief come as no surprise to those of us on the front line of evangelism. The general picture they reveal confirms what we have long known. Christianity is no longer the default religious belief in our society. The plane is descending so rapidly that unless action is taken, disaster looms imminently. We need a better, more positive and more dynamic strategy. 
In my view, what is needed is not a stripped-down creed tuned to the prevailing mood of the culture. That will not work. No one goes to church to hear exactly what they get from the media and from their friends and colleagues. What will bring them in and see them committed to the church is the full-blooded, confident preaching of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paradoxically, the way to change the census figures is to ignore them and insist and instead focus on producing changed lives through Jesus Christ. I was, thought that was tremendous. I was amazed the Times published it, but I thought it was tremendous. And he's right, isn't he? Paul didn't accommodate his message to the culture. We are called, Timothy was called, and we are called not to change the message. And Paul reminds Timothy in 1 verses 8 and 9 that it's only by the power of God that we'll be unashamed. And when he gives his little thumbnail sketch of the gospel, we can only ask, how can anybody be ashamed of such a message? And yet, sometimes I have to confess I am, and sometimes you probably are too. Sometimes we don't speak up when we could or should. Paul is certainly not ashamed. He says in chapter 1, verse 12, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. You might have noticed, if you're really with it, that I'm reading NIV and not ESV today, because the ESV translates that slightly differently. It translates it, I am convinced that he is able to guard what he has committed to me for that day, rather than what I have entrusted to him. And there's a bit of debate as to what exactly that verse means. But I think it means what the NIV says. Paul knows whom he has believed, and he is convinced that Jesus will guard his life and look after him until that final day of judgment. And I've just disagreed with John Stott in public. <laughs> so Paul tells Timothy he's not ashamed because he is certain of the one that he has believed in who will preserve him to the end. We're nearly done. Thirdly, Timothy was to remember that the word of God is not chained. Chapter 2, verse 9. In other words, persecution is counterproductive. Did the attempts to silence Paul work? Did all Paul's work disappear? Did the churches die out? Did the letters that Paul wrote to instruct the church vanish and never to be found again in history? You tell me. Do you think the expulsion of missionaries from China had the desired effect? Do you think the church just withered and died? There are millions of churches in China. And it's been the same everywhere that that has happened. When the authorities have tried to close down the church by persecution, the church has prospered. We had Robin McGee in Dungannon last Sunday, and he was showing us a video, again, it's on the Open Doors website, of one pastor who, who gave thanks for the fact that his church had been burnt down because it had given him an opportunity to spread the word in a way that he simply wouldn't have had had this not happened. So every time it seems that the church has been persecuted, it has grown, and yet... They don't really seem to have got the message yet, do they? So no matter what means the enemy has used to silence the voice of the gospel, he hasn't been successful. Whether it's by undermining the truth through false teaching or opposing it or persecuting leaders and Christians, he hasn't succeeded, and nor will he ultimately succeed. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against him. So there's much to encourage as well as to warn Timothy in this letter, as we've seen. So if persecution is inevitable for Timothy and for other Christians, he's helped by remembering to be prepared for it, not to be ashamed of the gospel or those who suffer for the gospel, 
and by remembering that God's word cannot be tied down. One more instruction for Timothy that we mustn't miss, though. Often Second Timothy is used, as I've said, at induction services or ordination services, and we proof-text our doctrine of Scripture, don't we, from chapter 3, verses 16. I read it earlier. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, etc., etc. But sometimes we forget the context in which Paul wrote those words. Paul is reminding Timothy here that he is not to depart from the message that he has learned and from the Scriptures in the face of persecution. And also because false teaching is coming and indeed is already with them. And there are several mentions in the letter and in Paul's other letters of those who oppose the truth. It's much harder to preserve the Christian faith if we don't know what it is. If we're unsure of what we actually believe, how can we be sure that the message is passed on? So like Timothy, we're encouraged to study it, especially but not only our church leaders. And to pass it on to others who will in turn pass it on to others. We always need to be looking for the next generation of Christian leaders, of elders in our churches, of pastors and missionaries, well taught, who will pass on the message to the next generation. We need to identify future leaders and teachers in our churches and train them either formally or informally. What about our children? Isn't it our responsibility to pass the message of the gospel on in our homes to our children and to our grandchildren if we have them to make sure that they understand the message and are properly taught in it so that they can in turn pass it on to their children and their children's children it's a very simple principle timothy is a great example isn't he of how he was taught by his grandmother and his mother paul says i know how you learned the scriptures from these godly women so if we do all of these things we're more likely to come through the fires of persecution when they come. Let me close by just commenting on Paul's, one of Paul's trustworthy sayings in chapter 2. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we're faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So if we walk away, if we apostatize, to use a big word, if we disown him entirely, he will disown us. He will say, I never knew you. You weren't a true believer in the first place. What does it mean then if we are faithless, he will remain faithful? I think it means if we slip up, if we occasionally, if we sin, if we occasionally deny our faith, if we occasionally behave in ways that are not Christian, he will still remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. As I said at the start, this is a very poignant letter. And as we read Paul's final words, we can't really help but be moved by what he says. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, for which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. You think that's the Apostle Paul. He was great. He was the Apostle Paul after all. What does he say in the next phrase? Not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So let me just close by asking you this morning, 
If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, or if you are, can you say this morning with Paul, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.